Good morning. Ooh, that's a little feedback there, but we'll get that corrected. It was so good to see you all here this morning, just to see a full church, ready to, excited to worship. I just wanted to expand a little bit on a couple of announcements that were made, just to make sure, uh, for, for one, the, uh, the, I know the, the women's ministry would be upset if I didn't mention this. Uh, there were a couple of needs for next week's Thanksgiving potluck, and there are some clipboards that are coming around that we, they, they specifically said we need some turkey and ham, amen? We need turkey and ham, right, if we're going to have a Thanksgiving dinner, so make sure we fill that out. Uh, so that's going to come around. There's also a need for people that are going to help with the, the cleanup afterward, okay? I know we don't get as many amens on that one, but if you can stick around and help with the cleanup, there's a clipboard for that as well, I believe. There's one coming around on this side. Is there one over there? Y'all have that clipboard? Hayden, did you have it? Is it being passed around? Okay. All right. So if you, if you happen, if you don't get that clipboard, just find it somewhere uh, in the, in the, out in the congregation after the service. Make sure you fill that out. Um, I also wanted to just mention, uh, just kind of expand a little bit on what Dr. Carl was saying about our connection cards. Okay. This is, if you're a visitor and this is your first time with us, we're gonna, we want you to fill one of these out. It lets us know that you were here and that we can, we can contact you during the week and say we're glad you're here and, let you, and find out if there's any questions you might have about ministries in our church, ways that you might get involved. Uh, if you have any questions at all about the, those, uh, what we do here at Evangelical Free Church, but we don't know how to contact you if you don't fill out a connection card. So we want to make sure you do that. And as a special reward for filling out a connection card and turning it into the welcome desk, you get this gift bag. Okay? It has a book in it. It has a new EFC tumbler. Yeah, right? It looks nice. That's free to any of our visitors that, that would want to stop by, fill out this card, turn it in, we'll give you one of these. Now, maybe you're, you might be thinking, I've been a first-time visitor, but it was a couple weeks ago. You didn't tell me about these. Can I still get one? <laughs> if you haven't filled out one of these and we don't have your information, you come by, drop that off at the welcome desk. We'll make sure you get a welcome bag. We're glad that you come, you've chosen to worship with us, so please make sure you do that now. You might be thinking, oh, I'm a long-time visitor, and I, I mean, I'm a long-time uh, attender of this church, and I like that mug. Okay, well, you can buy one. <laughs> They're not that expensive. You can see, you can, you can talk to, um, you can come by the office uh, or stop by the welcome desk, and we can have some of those available. They're $10 if you'd like your own EFC tumbler that you can advertise our church out in uh, whenever you're at work or wherever you might find yourself and you can let people know this is my home church and I enjoy being here. Like I said, it is a joy to be in the house of the Lord, to worship with God's people and it is with humble gratitude that I stand before you to be able to bring the word of the Lord this morning. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's gospel as we are going to continue in our study that pastor's been leading us through. We're in Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 33 is where we're going to find our text today. And I'm going to invite you to stand in honor and reverence for God and his word as we read this morning from Matthew 10, verses 26 through 33. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. 
Rather, fear him who cannot destroy both, or who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. May the Lord bless the reading of his pre- uh, and, and the reading and the preaching of his eternal and errant and holy word. May the Holy Spirit write its words on our hearts, Lord. May you bless this message this morning and the people who receive it, Lord, to be challenged by your word. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if you were to turn on any mainstream news outlet at almost any given time, but probably more so during an election cycle, you will see that the media has one primary tactic it uses to motivate its viewers or its listeners. Fear. They recognize that fear is one of the strongest ways in which they can manipulate and persuade people. If they can convince people that the sky is falling, that the most frightening scenarios are happening, it's, it's much easier to push whatever agenda they are selling. Why is fear such a strong motivator? Because it signals us that something is threatening to disrupt our comfort. Now, of course, there are real dangers that our minds and our bodies alert us to that we should be fearful of. But we saw last week when we went through the previous verses in this chapter that simply having our comfort threatened should not be a reason to be crippled by fear, to raise the white flag of surrender and to abandon our calling as disciples of Christ. We've been learning throughout our study of Matthew's gospel that the main theme that he has is the king has come. And we've seen from the moment that Christ began his earthly ministry in Matthew 4 with the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew wants his readers to understand what it looks like to be subjected or to be subject to this divine monarch. As Matthew asserts that Christ is king... There is, there is an implied call for people to submit to that kingly authority. And then as we've gotten to chapter 10, we see that call start to take shape as Jesus has called his first disciples, giving them instructions and exhortations on how to be committed followers. Last week, Pastor Greg taught us that Persecution will come to those who confess Christ. We learned that to be like Jesus, which is what every Christian is to aspire to be, is to, and we are to strive for, to be like Jesus means that we will be treated like Jesus. And we know that Jesus was mocked, scorned, spat upon, rejected, beaten, and ultimately put to death. And we're told that we shouldn't expect any less treatment. It doesn't sound like the greatest of recruitment pitches. But when we understand what we have been offered and given, then we know it is worth the cost. Christ came that we might have eternal life. 
eternal life with him in heaven, offering forgiveness of our sins, offering us escape from the torment of hell and countless blessings both in this life and in the next. So when we consider this, what we have been offered, it shouldn't matter what circumstances or conditions may come with following Christ. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right when he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And Bonhoeffer understood better than most that while we are certainly called to die to ourselves spiritually, there is also a notion that some will face the threat of death for their faith in Christ. But as we were reminded last week, there are much worse things that can happen to a person than death. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later as we get through this passage. But at the outside of this message, or at the outset of this message, I want us to consider what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? I read, the, I read this quote as I was studying this week. It doesn't take much of a man to become a Christian, but it does take all of him. Yes, our sinful nature is going to kick against the goads, as Paul put it, and we will never be a perfect follower of Christ here on earth, but we should still say, as the old hymn goes, all to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior, holy thine. So to be like Christ, to be fully surrendered to Him, means we will endure persecution. Now most of us have not had to endure anything like what we have watched in the video earlier. But I'm sure there are some who could point to times in our lives where we, were fa where we have faced ridicule, discrimination, or possibly threats because of our commitment to Christ. We have been extremely fortunate in our country to not have faced the same level of persecution that our brothers and sisters across the globe are facing. But we should expect it. And we should be, pre pre be preparing our children and the next generation to expect it. But we do not do so in fear. And that's going to be the backdrop of our passage today as we look on the call of the disciple to go boldly into the world. A world that hates Christ and proclaim him. As you're taking notes, and you probably saw in your handout, which please feel free to take notes, and you can do so on the app or in the bulletin, but you saw that the title of today's message is To Go Boldly. Now, and of course, I had the tagline from the original Star Trek series in my mind. But they, of course, said, To Boldly Go. So there's a difference. For one, I'm not going to split my infinitive. You grammar people would appreciate that. But also, the crew of the Starship Enterprise, they were endeavoring to boldly go where no man has gone before. Such is not the case with Christians. We are going where many have gone before when it is called to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. And we, in fact, we are walking the same path as Christ who, has endure, who endured much persecution. So my hope this morning is to help those of us who confess to be Christian, who confess to be disciples and followers of Jesus, to understand the nature of our calling. How we will be tempted to stray from that calling, and how we can live out our calling before a watching world. Now for those who may be here this morning who have yet surrendered your all to Jesus, my prayer and my hope is that God's word would come alive to you.
that you would be brought face to face with the reality of your sin and see that the only hope for salvation is Christ. There will be temptations to stray from the path. There will be threats that will tempt us to fear. But we must, as the author of Hebrews tells us, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what is it that disciples are called to do? Well, the first is we are called to not fear. Our passage that we're looking at today begins with the phrase, so have no fear of them. Who is them? Well, we have to go back and look at what we studied last week and the passage. Matthew had just finished saying that the followers of Jesus should, be ex- should expect to be, a, to be maligned by the world because they did the same to Jesus. And in verse 21, we are told, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. So, followers of Christ should expect to receive persecution from the world. But we are not to fear the world. The them, that is the world that, we, that Jesus had just been talking about. You will receive persecution from them, but do not fear them. It's human nature to want to avoid problems and conflict. People don't naturally want to be thought little of or mistreated, and even less to suffer and die. Pastor John MacArthur, he made the statement that say, Christians who have fallen prey to today's great emphasis on self-preservation find it especially difficult to confront sinful society with the demands and standard of the gospel. Our culture has produced an unacceptable softness among evangelicals. In other words, we find it difficult to speak out for the Lord because of fear. Whether it's fear of being considered foolish, backward, extremist, unsophisticated, obtrusive, or strange, or fear of, be, of receiving backlash from friends, families, co-workers, or employees. Jesus knew that criticism, abuse, and danger would become frequent companions of the disciples. So he repeatedly encouraged them to not be afraid. In fact, he repeats this command three times in this passage alone. But it's not just Jesus who gives this command. In fact, this command is is to not be afraid is repeated over 300 times in Scripture. 366 times according to some. It's the most frequent command given by God in the Scriptures. And just as with any command, we should obey it simply because God says so. He says, don't be afraid. Okay. Now, it's, it, there's, there's an ongoing uh, sort of a joke when, when someone is anxious, stressed, or even fearful, that simply to tell them to calm down or stop it is not the best response. You know, if somebody's angry, you say, you know what, you should just stop being angry. And be like, oh, that helps. Okay. <laughs> well, when God says, stop being fearful... We should stop being fearful. We don't need any other reason to not. But God in his infinite wisdom gives us plenty of reasons to not. And he, see, he gives us some here in this passage. He gives us proofs why we should not be afraid or anxious. 
So as we're called to not fear, the way that we are able to do that, we have to be able to see with an eternal perspective. And what that means is we have to be able to see beyond our current circumstance, to see beyond whatever may be causing us to fear or whatever is threatening our discomfort. In this instance, Matthew gives us a promise of indication when we read the rest of verse 26. He says, no, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Now, if we took this verse out of context, it might cause us some more anxiety because we're, we're all here. We're told everything ever done in secret will be will be revealed. And all of a sudden now we start getting really anxious. Right? God's going to know. Well, OK, God, God already knows everything. But that's not that's not what the point of this, what, what Jesus is saying here in this verse. Um, in fact, just to kind of as an aside to that, R.C. Sproul said in his commentary, he shared an illustration about a prankster who sent identical anonymous letters to 20 prominent businessmen and leaders in the community. And all it said was, all is known, flee at once. The next day, all 20 men had moved out of town. We, we, we do fear the thought of th- everything being exposed, but that is not what, Matt, that's not what Jesus is talking about, the, of being exposed. Here, this verse is referring to the plots and the plans of those who would oppose followers of Christ being brought to light. When someone threatens us or does wrong to us, we should trust that God will vindicate those who trust in Him, that God's justice will ultimately prevail. It may not come in our time. We may, we may long to see it. We want to see somebody get punished for what we see as, uh, as wrongs against us and our faith, but it might not be in our timing, but we can trust that it will happen in God's timing. Pastor and seminary president uh, Ligon Duncan, he said, We are not to fear what these men do in darkness against you. It is going to, it's all going to be brought to light. It's all going to be judged. There's going to be no injustice that you suffer on God's behalf that he is not going to bring to light and judge. Don't fear that we are going to walk through this world and never receive justice. We are going to get justice in the end, and those who have oppressed you will be brought to justice. But this requires an eternal perspective. If we are too focused on what happens to us in this life, it's going to be hard for us to accept these terms. Do we believe that the treasures of eternity are worth experiencing minor suffering in this temporal flesh? Do we recognize that any discomfort that the world tries to throw our way is a mere drop in the bucket to the vast ocean of blessings that will be awarded to us when we stand before the throne of God? And then as we get to verse 27, we see what appears to be a contrasting philosophy or mindset from what was being discussed in verse 26. He's talking about what's hidden, what is in the darkness, and now we're talking about things being brought, or what is, what is spoken in secret being shouted out from the rooftops. So the schemers, the plotters, the evildoers, they love the darkness. They love to be in secret and hiding because truth is found in the light. So when we are called to not fear those who operate in darkness, we are to be contrary to them, and we are to speak with a holy boldness. Jesus commands, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. We should not be afraid to speak of the things of God before the world. 
We ought to do so, as we've already said, because we've been commanded. We need to simply obey the commands of the Lord. But we also ought to do so because the world needs to hear. When we realize the vast treasure that is found within the Word of God, we must realize that this is a treasure to be shared. And when we realize the vast treasure that is, or when we, when we share that, the, or so the Apostle Paul, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Contained within the pages of the Holy Scriptures is the greatest gift that we could ever hope to receive. And when we realize that the world is dying in need of a Savior, we should never cease to shout its truths from the housetops. Unfortunately, as, we, as Pastor Greg mentioned this last week, there are too many Christians who believe that God has called them to be covert operatives. That they must blend in with the world so as not to offend. But that's not what Jesus has called us to. This doesn't mean that our goal is to offend, that that should be what we're planning to do. But if we are proclaiming God's word, that alone is offensive to the world. And we should worry more about what God thinks than what the world thinks. One commentary I was reading told the story of two different reformers. First, of Hugh Latimer, the leader of the English Reformation, who on one, on, on one occasion had the daunting privilege of preaching before the sometimes violent King Henry VIII. Latimer was about to say something the king might dislike, and he, as, as if he was speaking to himself, stood in the pulpit saying, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say, the king is here. Then he paused and said, Latimer, Latimer, Be careful what you do not say. The king of kings is here. And then there was John Knox, the Scottish reformer, who became known for his boldness in proclaiming the gospel and standing up to uh, Queen Mary. And it was said of him when he died, Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared, feared the face of any man. These were men who spoke with boldness because they understood the gravity and necessity of their message. So when Jesus is saying to shout from the rooftops what has been whispered to them, what he is talking about these, when he's talking about the secret things of God, what he means is what the world does not understand. What the world does not understand needs to be proclaimed, it needs to be preached, it needs to be taught. Again, if we quote from the book of Romans, Paul writes, How then will they call on him who they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? We, the church, we are not some secret society, not some fraternal brotherhood, private country club with secret knocks and handshakes. The truths that we have received are meant to be shared. What you hear from God on Sundays or in Bible study or even in your private devotional time is meant to be taken to the world. Some will not receive it, some will reject it, and some will revile us. But that does not change our calling. And Jesus continues in verse 28. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So as we see with this eternal perspective and as we speak with a holy boldness, now we are called to sacrifice with a humble veneration. 
We have another contrast of ideas in this verse, this time seeing the difference between two types of fears. Jesus first commands his disciples to not fear even death as you go out proclaiming his truth. Again, hearkening back to last week's message, there are worse things that can happen to us than death. And those of us who have trusted Christ for salvation know that death is not the end for us. That is why the Apostle Paul was able to write, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Why would we fear death if it meant that we got to be with our Lord and Savior? When we take the message of the gospel to the world, we should do so with an abandonment uh, and sacrifice of our own personal comfort. We say we can't talk to people because we're, we're afraid. I'm not going to share the gospel because I'm too fearful. We're afraid because we don't know enough. We'll be seen as ignorant, that we'll be ridiculed or rejected, or some other form of light persecution. And I say light persecution because it feels utterly ridiculous to complain about these minor discomforts when there are brothers and sisters in Christ around this world who are being disowned by their families, because they accepted Christ, who, are, who know that simply going to church could cost them their freedom or even their life. The persecuted church around the world is standing up and saying, we will not fear those who can only destroy our bodies because we know that our soul is in the hands of a sovereign God. It is not the world we should fear, but God. The prophet Isaiah received, a, received similar instruction as Israel was facing a coming invasion from the Assyrians. And if you read in Isaiah 8, it says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. This idea of the fear of the Lord is found all throughout Scripture. Isaiah used this phrase several times, and you see here in this passage that he coupled fear of the Lord with honoring the, the Lord as holy. When we recognize our own sin, we, I, I believe it was even last, was it last week, Isaiah 6? Did we, we read that last week, I believe. Isaiah recognizing his sinfulness, woe is me, when he stood, when he found himself in that vision of the temple of the Lord. That is the reaction that we get because of our sin. We don't have a right view of our sin anymore these days. We need to go back to the Puritans who understood the sinfulness of sin and the gravity and the weight, and we cry out to God, woe is me, as I stand in the presence of a holy, sinless God. This fear that we see all throughout Scripture, we see it, like I said, we see it in Isaiah, I mentioned it several times. The Psalms is all, all throughout the Psalms we see the fear of the Lord. And in Proverbs, we, it tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This fear is different than the fear that, that Christ was warning about when he told his disciples to not fear the world. In this instance, the word fear refers to a holy reverence, an awe or veneration when we truly understand who god is his holiness we ought to rightly tremble because it is god who has the authority and the power to condemn our souls to eternal punishment 
Again, a reading from John MacArthur. He writes that the faithful disciple values his soul immeasurably more than he values his body, and he will gladly sacrifice that which is only physical and corruptible for the sake of that which is spiritual and incorruptible. And then the missionary, Jim Elliott, who was murdered while trying to bring the gospel to Indians in Ecuador, once wrote, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Rightful fear of the Lord helps us to see things with an eternal perspective, gives us the courage to speak boldly. And as we get to these, the, the next section of verses, we see how our calling as disciples to not fear the, the world is fulfilled in a second part of our calling, and that is we are called to trust. Trust is such a valuable commodity. We have to work hard to earn it, and when it is broken, it is not easily restored. But with God, He has never given us any reason why we should not trust Him. The pages of Scripture are filled to the brim of evidences of God's care for His people. In this section of Scripture, we have Jesus giving us a couple of examples of why we should trust God. The first one we see is that God rules us sovereignly. Jesus mentions the the common and relatively valueless sparrow. And here we're told that these birds were so inexpensive that two of them could be bought for one cent. In Luke's Gospel, he mentions that five sparrows were bought for two cents. It's like they threw in the, the, the fifth one as a bargain. You know, like when you go to the donut shop and you order a dozen donut holes and they throw in a couple extra because they realize, eh, we're not going to miss those. They're, they're so inexpensive. And he's like, hey, here's you want buy four sparrows here? I'll throw in a fifth sparrow for free because you know, they're so cheap. That's what, that's what the sparrows were. They were poor people's food. They were insignificant. No one would notice if they were missing. Think about the pocket change you get from the store. For most of us, if we dropped a penny out of our pocket, We would be completely unaware. And Jesus says that nothing happens to these sparrows apart from God. Nothing happens in our lives apart from God. When we experience persecution from the world, we can trust that God is there with us. He is working in that situation. He is ruling over everything. He may allow us to experience certain circumstances to test us or to teach us to rely on Him, but there is nothing in this world that catches God off guard. He rules us sovereignly, but not only does He rule us sovereignly, He also knows us completely. In a second illustration, Jesus points to the very fact that every hair on our heads is numbered. Now, to many of us, the number of hairs on our heads seem like such an inconsequential detail. Others have learned not to take it for granted. The average, person's hair, the average hair count on a person's head is, to, is around 140,000. Okay, some of y'all are breaking that average, bringing it down. But, uh, but the average number of hairs on the head, around 100, 140,000. God has such knowledge of every person that has ever lived that he knows exactly how many hairs we have. And what seems like such an inconsequential detail demonstrates the omniscience of God and should then show us how much more concerned He is about the spiritual matters of far greater consequence. 
And like the sparrows, not one of our hairs fall from our head without it being willed by our Heavenly Father. Now we've read this as a church several times, the, the, the parts of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question one, we've, we've, we've read it together before, where it asks the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer stated, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by, my, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. We find comfort both in this life and even in our death because we belong to Christ and because he knows us. He knows everything about us down to the last detail. You ever sat in a doctor's office and had to fill out one of those patient questionnaires? When I, the last time I switched to, when I switched to our, my current family practitioner, I, I had to, I mean, it felt like I was, I was writing a novel. And the packet of the book, the packet that he gave me, he said, we need, we need to know all this information. You may not be thinking, you're sitting in a doctor's office, like, I got an earache. Why do you need to know about all this other stuff going on in my body? Well, be, the reason they need to know that is because the, a doctor can provide the best care possible the more that he knows about us. God already knows everything about us. He knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly how to care for us. He knows how to provide for us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our struggles. And we can trust God in his care for us because he knows us completely. And then we can trust him because he cares or he loves us deeply. So after giving these two illustrations about birds and hairdos, Jesus then offers assurance that our Heavenly Father loves and values us much more than the sparrows. Matthew recorded a similar statement from Christ during the Sermon on the Mount. As he was teaching about not being anxious regarding what we eat or wear, if we go back to Matthew 6, verses 25 through 26, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It is not life more than food, body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they. Mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. He is the only part of creation that is made in his image. In Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5, we hear David say, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. God loves and cares for all of his creation, Mankind even more so, and even more those who have been saved and are his children. When Christ calls us to walk the path of a disciple, he calls us to trust him. How much easier is it to trust when we know that God is in control of every detail of our lives, that he knows us completely, and he cares and loves us deeply. And then lastly, we see that as Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to confess him 
before the world. We've already touched on this a little bit in our first point, as Jesus already told his disciples to proclaim what they have heard on the rooftops. But what, what he is saying here seems to carry a little more weight when he says in verse 32, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Now that word acknowledge, we might read that in the English and think that, well, that sounds like such an innocuous word that like acknowledge that just sounds like when two guys are passing each other and they give each other you know the guy nod it's i acknowledge you okay and men men can say a lot with a nod of the head okay we we, we, all right i mean it doesn't matter in fact i'm gonna let you women in on some secrets men you think men don't communicate we can say a lot just with the nod of our head depending on which direction we go y'all know that okay this that's that's a greeting of hi how are you doing this, down, that's a sign of respect. As in, I greet you with humble respect. I don't know you, or I see that you did something incredible. Respect. This, come here, I need to tell you something. <laughs> Go to the left side, check out what's going on over there. Okay? Men say a lot, just with a nod of the head. We don't have to use words, just a nod of the head. But we think maybe that word acknowledge just means, I acknowledge you. I see that you're there, and I acknowledge your existence. Well, not so. That's not what this verse is talking about when he says acknowledge. It goes so much deeper than that because that this word acknowledge, it means to confess. And with confession comes affirmation, agreement, or identification. James tells us that even the demons recognize and acknowledge who Christ is as the Son of God, but they are not in agreement with him. They do not share their identity with him. Confession goes so much deeper. Paul writes again in Romans, in Romans 10, 9 through 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That confession, it's more than just speaking words with the mouth. It is talking about what is in the heart and how that what is in the heart directs our outward actions. It's saying we identify with Christ. Outward confession, it's a reflection of genuine belief in the heart. It's more than just lip service. It's about living a life of obedience that leaves no shred of doubt in anyone's mind that we belong to Christ. Now that word identity or identify has been so mangled by our current culture, it's been used to express feelings or, in actuality, delusions. But identity is not about how you feel. It's, it's about who or what you are. You don't identify as a gender because you feel you are a certain gender. You are whatever gender you, you were made by God. You can't identify as a certain ethnicity because you feel like you belong to a certain ethnic group. You are whatever ethnicity you were born into. And you aren't a Christian because you feel like a Christian. You are a Christian because you were born again by Christ, and he made you a Christian, a follower, and a disciple. To confess Christ is to recognize that our identity is bound to him. Our lives should reflect him, not just our words, but our actions. And for those who do confess Christ, we will see that that confession leads to eternal reward. If we acknowledge and confess that we are with Christ, then he will do the same before our Heavenly Father. 
If I say to the world, see this Jesus of the Bible, I'm with him. When I stand before a holy God as a created being, marred with the stain of sin, Jesus says, see this broken piece of clay? He's with me. Clothed in a righteousness not my own, I will be granted access into the presence of God to enjoy the benefits of eternal glory. Joint heir with Christ to rule in the new heavens and new earth. That is what awaits those who confess Christ here. In Revelation 3, in the letters to the seven churches, the Apostle John is told to write this to the church at Sardis. The one who conquers will be clothed, clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. If we are willing to stand before the world's court, and what I mean by that is the court of public opinion or possibly even an actual court, But if we are willing to stand before the world's court and unashamedly confess our allegiance to Christ, when we stand before the heavenly court, Christ will confess that we belong to him and will show that our sins have been blotted out and our name is written in the book of life. So are you confessing Christ? Does your life reflect him? Can people tell that you are one of those Christians? Because to refuse to confess Christ before men is to deny him. And Christ finishes this section by saying that denial leads to eternal judgment. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus has already taught that there will be those who thought they were with him simply because they did good deeds. But yet he did not know them, and he says in Matthew 7, 23, And I will then declare, or I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We saw in Revelation 3 that to truly know Christ is to have your name written in the book of life. Later in Revelation 20, verse 15, we are told, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is the judgment that awaits those who deny Christ. Denial comes in many forms. It can be an obstinate decrying of anything to do with Christ, or it can be found in silence, an unwillingness to be seen as a follower of Jesus. And when we talk about denial, it, it, we, it, it almost tends to that we would still be thinking about the Apostle Peter. He certainly denied knowing Christ in a moment. But I don't think any of us would suggest that Peter isn't in heaven. But Peter's life was not characterized by a lapse in judgment. He made a mistake and he repented and he was restored by Christ. What Jesus is talking about here is to live a life of constant denial and refusal to acknowledge him before men. is to invite God's holy wrath and judgment. And I say that today because there is still time to repent. If you're here this morning and you you recognize that you have been denying Christ, that you have refused to acknowledge Him as Savior and Lord, there is still time to do so. To sit under the hearing and the teaching of His Word is a measure of grace that you have been shown. And the call is clear, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So if you've been denying Christ, the call is there to turn to him while you still have opportunity. 
And if you profess to be a disciple of Christ, know that you have been called to not fear what man can do to you. You will experience persecution because Christ experienced persecution. But there will be vindication. Justice will prevail. So we are also called to trust. Christian, God loves you, cares for you, and he will be with you even in the darkest of times. As David wrote in the 23rd Psalm, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Because God cares for us so, we are to confess him before others. In spite of what they might think or how they might treat us. In a book titled, I Love Idi Amin, The Story of Triumph Under Fire in the Midst of Suffering and Persecution in Uganda, Minister uh, Festo Hivinger tells the story of three young boys ranging from ages 11 to 15 who were forced to give their lives for Christ because they would not renounce their faith in Him. As they were ordered to be executed, the boys asked that a message be given to the king which said, Tell His Majesty that He has put our bodies in the fire, but we won't be long in the fire. Soon we will be with Jesus, which is much better. But ask Him to repent and change His mind, or He will land in a place of eternal fire. The youngest of the boys said, Please don't cut off my arms. I will not struggle in the fire that takes me to Jesus. Because of these boys' testimonies, many others came to faith. In Christ, and over the next several years, there were many others who became martyrs themselves, dying for their faith. They had a deep love for Jesus that they refused to hide, no matter what the cost. That is the cost of discipleship. Are we willing to pay that cost? Because we know great is our reward. Let's pray. Almighty God, ruler of heaven and earth. It is with humble hearts that we thank you for the call to salvation that you have given to us, that you have made possible through your Son, Jesus Christ. May we answer that call to live, for bold, or to live with boldness, to live for you publicly, to confess you before a world that needs to hear your truth. Give us courage to stand in the face of persecution and to share your gospel with those who need to hear it. Help us to trust you, Lord knowing that you are a good and gracious Father who desires to bless your children. May we find our hope in knowing you and our comfort in the promise of eternal life with you. Lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Amen. Thank you, Brian, for bringing us the word. Let's stand and sing our final song, Christ Our Hope in Life and Death. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our soul 